0: Avi Loeb is an Israeli-American theoretical physicist who works on astrophysics and cosmology. He's also the professor of science at Harvard University. And in December 2017, the first known interstellar object was detected passing through our solar system, and it was named Amuamua. Loeb cited Amuamua's unusually elongated shape as one of the reasons why the Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia should listen for radio missions from it to see if there were any unexpected signs that it might be artificial in origin. Hi, Avi. Welcome to the show. Hi, Evan. Thanks for having me. My, my big question for you is, it's a broad one, uh, what is Oumuamua?
1: <laughs> well, Oumuamua is an object that was discovered in on uh, October 19th, 2017, by a telescope in Hawaii called pan And because of that, it was given this name, Oumuamua, which means a scout in the Hawaiian language. This was the first object from outside the solar system that we spotted near Earth with that telescope. And uh, it was the size of a football field. And of course, the first thing you can think of is if it came from outside the solar system, and we know that because it moved too fast to be bound to the sun. Um, then uh, maybe it came from another star and it's just like the rocks that we have seen already in the solar system, except that it came from another system like the solar system. But then uh, as astronomers collected more data about it, it didn't look like anything we have seen before, didn't look like a comet uh, or an asteroid. A a comet is a rock uh, covered with ice and when it gets close to the sun, the ice evaporates and you see a cometary tail. Uh, of uh, gas and dust, water vapor. Uh, But there was no such tail visible around this object. And moreover, the Spitzer Space Telescope looked for carbon-based molecules, didn't see any traces of that. And so it it was definitely not a comet of the type that we have seen before. And then uh, as it was tumbling every eight hours, the amount of sunlight that was reflected from it changed by a factor of 10 you have to understand that we identify such objects, we find them by the reflection of sunlight. The sun acts as a lamppost that illuminates the the darkness around us and allows us to see objects passing by. And this one, uh, as it was tumbling, changed its brightness by a factor of 10, which meant that it has a very extreme shape. And the most likely shape is that of a pancake, a flat object based on the change in the reflected light. And so that's very unusual, a factor of 10, and we usually see at most a factor of three. Um, And so in addition to that, as it was moving, um, uh, there was an excess push acting on it uh, in addition to the force of gravity, which we know how to calculate from the sun. Uh, And this excess push, uh, the only way I could explain it was uh, as a result of reflecting sunlight. And for that, the object had to be very thin. Uh, sort of like a sail. But uh, nature doesn't make such objects that are so thin. And in fact, uh, in September 2020, just last year, there was another object detected that exhibited a push away from the sun by reflecting sunlight with no cometary tail. And it was discovered by the same telescope in Hawaii. And the astronomers figured out, ah, actually this object that was given the name 2020SO is actually a rocket booster that was launched in 1966 as part of a lunar lander mission. And so we know why it was pushed by reflecting sunlight because it had very thin walls. It had the large area for its mass and uh, that's why it behaved sort of like a sail. Um, so we know that we produce this object artificially, it's a rocket booster from 1966. The question is who produced
0: Oumuamua? So uh, can a Muamua also be a space debris from another era?
1: No, because uh, it moved faster than any chemical rocket that we can launch. And moreover, it's not bound to the sun. So, Hmm. uh, you know, it's just impossible for it to be a relic from
0: Earth. And how many meters per second are we talking about?
1: Well, its motion was, uh, uh, you know, of the order of... uh, 40 or or so kilometers per second. I mean, Hmm. obviously, speed changed as it was moving around. Uh, So kilometers per second or miles per second, it's really a very high speed. But uh, in astronomy, this is the characteristic speed by which, um, you know, objects like stars move through interstellar space. So it's tens of
0: uh, miles per second. Tens of miles per second. Now, that's really fast. Um, Now, why... uh... Isn't the scientific community open-minded about the idea that this might be extraterrestrial in nature?
1: Well, uh, there are many reasons for that. Um, You know, I've been working on on other topics throughout my career, and I've written by now more than 800 scientific papers and published eight books on different frontiers, including the early universe, the first stars that were lit up in the universe, uh, sort of the scientific version of the story of Genesis also i worked on black holes in fact i'm the founding director of the black hole initiative at harvard where we imaged uh, a black hole in m87 that was the first image of a black hole that was obtained in the conference room of our center and i worked on uh, the nature of dark matter and and all kinds of questions scientific questions for which we don't have the answer yet and uh, in some of those instances when you know the evidence is not sufficient you suggest um, Possibilities, you suggest uh, ideas. And uh, I should say, I suggested ideas that are far more speculative than this, uh, but was never, uh, I I never received the pushback of the time I received to to this possibility that Oumuamua was of artificial origin. And if you ask me why, I would say for several reasons. One is it takes scientists out of their comfort zone because, um, you know, the public is extremely excited about this subject. And there are stories, you know, of science fiction. There, is, uh, there are all kinds of UFO reports. And so uh, scientists shy away uh, from that because, uh, you know, they maintain uh, uh, activity sort of separate from uh, the public's interest. That, you know, I, I find that separation to be actually inappropriate. I think we should actually uh, reflect the public's interest be, because then, um, Uh, we're actually doing our job, we're funded by the public, and we are supposed to echo the public's interest. And the second thing is, uh, you know, it touches on a very emotional aspect of our existence, um, which is our ego. Uh, And and, uh, it's much better to think that we are special, unique, and the smartest. And, uh, you know, it started a thousand years ago, uh, or, or thousands of years ago, when people argued that we are at the center of uh, the universe. And uh, Aristotle, the ancient Greek philosopher, argued that, and people believed him for a thousand years because uh, it flatters our ego to think that we are the center. And then uh, Copernicus and Galileo uh, recognized that uh, based on the data that they had, that uh, most likely the earth moves around the sun. And philosophers basically refused to look through Galileo's telescope and put him in house arrest. Uh, But that didn't change the fact that we are not at the center and we move around the sun. And, uh, you know, when my daughters were young, they tended to think that they are the smartest. Uh, And when we took them to the kindergarten, that was a psychological shock for them to see other kids that might be smarter than Mm -hmm. they are. And so, um, you know, for our civilization to mature, we need to meet others. But if we keep our windows closed and the curtains closed, you know, we can argue that we are the smartest, we can argue that we don't have neighbors. Um, and we can argue that we need extraordinary evidence before we even need to discuss this subject, which is pretty much uh, what my colleagues are doing. They're saying, give me extraordinary evidence, otherwise I would not be, you know, I would ridicule this possibility. Uh, of course, we can do that, but and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because if you're not looking through the window, if you're not investing funds in the search, uh at the level of the funds that are being used to search for dark matter for example Uh, hundreds of millions of dollars if you don't do that then you will not find extraordinary evidence uh so you know it's pretty much very comfortable to sit in a position where you say you know the evidence is not sufficient but i don't want to invest any funds in that direction and that's pretty much what happens uh, and, and in this way, we can maintain the the illusion that we are the smartest, that we are really special, unique and privileged, which is a comfortable you know position to be in. And uh, there is a risk uh, in taking a different position, of course. And, and most uh, people in academia prefer to, uh, you know, uh, not take risks, rather improve their image so that they can get honors and awards. And uh, that pretty much dictates the culture in academia right now, which I would say uh, is actually less risk taking than uh, the private sector, which is surprising. You you see companies that are willing to consider blue sky ideas uh, much more than you see the same thing in academia, which is supposed to be blue sky. Uh, You know, the tenure system in academia is supposed to give you job security so you, you can take risks uh and yeah but and that's pretty much what I'm doing
0: well that's that's very good um Avi now um what do you think about this newly released uh, Pentagon footage that seemingly shows what are called uh, UAPs or unidentified aerial phenomenon as a as a uh, physicist as a cosmologist as an astrophysicist what does your brain see when it sees this footage, is it yay? It's some sort of extraterrestrial device, or nay? It's it's a human and probably military.
1: Yeah. The most important statement in the report is that some of the objects are real because they were detected by multiple instruments: uh, radar systems, infrared sensors, optical cameras, and multiple people seeing the same thing, doing the same thing. Uh, and that's an extremely important statement. It's not a smudge on the on the camera. It's not. Uh, a uh, malfunction of an instrument, one single instrument. It's not illusions by some pilot. Um, and so if you accept that, and if you also recognize that, you know, the intelligence uh, agencies would have known if it belongs to the Russians or the Chinese, because it would have reflected some technologies that we are familiar with, uh, then the fact that they come out with this report that says, we don't know the nature of these objects, and some of them are real, quite significant because at this point what i would say is that uh it's intriguing enough for the subject to move away from the talking points of politicians and national security advisors and military personnel into the realm of science and you don't expect a plumber to bake you cakes right so you don't expect (laughs) officials in uh, Washington, DC, you know, politicians to explain to you what you see in the sky. That's the job of scientists. And these people were not trained as scientists. So uh, I'm currently raising funds from the private sector to initiate uh, scientific research into this question so that we can address the nature of these objects because the public cares about it. And if it's not you know other nations spying on us which is unlikely to be the case um, as according to the the nature of the of the reports um, then it could be one of two things it could be some natural phenomena in the atmosphere that we haven't anticipated or it could be extraterrestrial technology that we also didn't anticipate and either way we will learn something new so it's exciting Uh, And I see anomalies, you know, things that do not line up with what we expected as an opportunity to learn something new about uh, reality. Uh, Many of my colleagues see it as a threat because they prefer to believe that we already know everything. And uh, my view is pretty much that of a kid. You know, kids learn about the world. They don't have a prejudice. They just experiment, try to find more about every object and that's why they get bruised sometimes, they make mistakes, but but it's part of the learning experience. And I pretty much maintain my childhood curiosity. That's the privilege of being a scientist is that <laughs> you can you don't need to pretend that you know the answers. You are not a politician as a scientist. You are you're not supposed to pretend to portray an image as if you know everything, as if you are superior, you know, that you know more than the public knows. That's not really the purpose of science. The purpose of science is you know to collect evidence and let's figure out what things are you know and if we make mistakes if we think something is behaving that way but it turns out to be different so be it but let's find let's get more evidence so we can clear up the fog uh, and on the case on the subject of UAP unidentified aerial phenomena we just need better quality scientific evi- evidence data that i think we can collect
0: right and what do you say to those who say, why are these detected around military facilities and structures? Is that a clue about, it, about their origin, possibly?
1: No, I would say it's also possible that we have more uh, patrols uh, in those regions. Uh, so it's not at all clear to me whether that's just a selection effect. And one way to find out is to put a telescope on a deserted island and monitor the sky there. <laughs>
0: That's a good point. Do you think there's a correlation between these uh, UAPs and uh, other, other systems, or LAMUAMUA, some sort of uh, information network?
1: Well, it's possible that uh, the reason that Lomuomua was a flat structure, size of a football field that was uh, tumbling, is that it was collecting data from probes that were... Uh, sprinkled uh, on (laughs) planets in the inner solar system a long time ago it's possible Uh, we should not dismiss that Uh, but my point is we should look for more objects like Oumuamua and take a a close-up photograph of them uh, in the future or take a high-resolution photograph of a UAP, an object that was unidentified before, uh, or new objects that uh, resemble those objects that were not identified. And once we have a high-resolution image, like a megapixel image, we could resolve the label on the object and, and see whether it says, made in a country so-and-so on Earth or made on planet X. You know, that will tell us the origin of this. And uh, we can get uh, such an image. It's just a matter of, uh, you know, uh, using telescopes for that purpose.
0: Hmm. Now, tell me about your latest book called uh, Extraterrestrial. What inspired you to write it? And tell me more about it.
1: Yeah, so what inspired me originally was Oumuamua, and I tell the story of Oumuamua in the book, uh, which uh, together with uh, my proposal that it may may have been an artificial object and and also the response of the scientific community to that, uh, intertwined with my personal history, which affected the way I behaved under these circumstances. Uh, You know, I've been serving uh, for nine years as the Chair of the Astronomy Department at Harvard while this was happening. Um, And um, moreover, I I would say one thing that, you know, this book, of course, um, got the attention of the public and the media. I had about a thousand interviews about it over the past six months, which is basically back to back every day uh, from 8 a.m. till 7 p.m. for six months. Uh, And that was possible only because of the pandemic. Uh, The book was... Uh, became bestseller in many countries, including the New York Times and here in the U.S., Um, and uh, was translated to 25 languages worldwide, 28 editions uh, so far. It's only half a year after it came out. Um, And then, uh, you know, there were about 25 uh, filmmakers and producers that contacted me about using the book for a script. Um, And um, I should say that... um, You know, I wouldn't write the book if we had an image of Oumuamua that could tell us whether it's an artificial object or a rock. Uh, So they say usually a picture is worth a thousand words. In my case, a picture is worth 66,000 words, the number of (laughs) words in my book.
0: (laughs) After Oumuamua left uh, the solar system, how long were we able to track it for?
1: yeah so it was uh, visible to us. You have to understand that it gets faint uh, it gets fainter and fainter as it moves away from the sun mm-hmm. uh, inversely with the distance to the fourth power, which uh, makes it practically invisible you know beyond the, a few months after it was detected. it was already moving away from us so mm-hmm. and now it's a million times uh, fainter than it was close to the sun, so we can't see it. And we cannot chase it because it moves faster than our uh, chemical rockets. Um, but what we need to do is search for more of the same. And uh, there is a telescope that would survey the sky in a couple of years um, uh, called the, the Vera Rubin Observatory in Chile. Uh, and it will have much greater sensitivity than Pan stars the telescope in Hawaii that detected Oumuamua. So potentially it could discover an object like it. Uh, every month potentially and uh, just because it's much more sensitive and my point is if we find another weird object that doesn't behave like a comet or an asteroid uh, that is getting pushed by reflecting sunlight uh, then uh, we might as well and and we see it a year before it approaches us on its way towards us we could send a spacecraft that will intersect its uh, trajectory and take a close-up photograph of it. Just like the osiris rex mission, yeah. uh, a close-up photo of uh, the asteroid Bennu and actually landed on it and brought a sample that it will deliver to Earth in 2023, uh, in much the same way, if we land on an artificial object, you know, we could potentially import the technology to Earth. And if it represents our future, like something that we it would take us a thousand years or a million years to develop ourselves, you know, I'm sure there will be a lot of entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley that will uh, change their focus to,
0: to, to this technology. If a muamua is what you think it is, primarily an extraterrestrial device that probably belongs to some sort of mothership, is this kind of for lack of a better word, interstellar cross-pollination? Has it been happening for hundreds, thousands, or millions of years?
1: Oh, yeah, because it, um, Oumuamua itself, you know, at, at the speed that it was moving would take 10,000 years to cross the entire solar system. So oh, obviously, you know, we were not interesting 10,000 years ago. Just think where we were back then. We were, we were almost indistinguishable from animals. Right. Uh but on the other hand there was this habitable planet close to the sun, you know, the Earth. Uh that uh, had a lot of greenery. Uh, from a distance you could tell that it can harbor it may it, it's pro- it probably harbors life. Uh and you know there are many planets like it uh in the solar system, in the in the Milky Way galaxy. Uh, tens of billions of them based on the fact that we now realize that a quarter to half of all the Sun-like stars have a planet the size of the Earth, roughly at the same separation. So you could imagine, uh, I mean, most of the stars formed billions of years before the Sun. And you can imagine if a civilization like ours existed, let's say a billion years ago, then they decided to send out probes that that are equipped with artificial intelligence and 3D printers that can replicate themselves once they land on on a planet. And you can imagine uh, going to all those habitable planets and being there for the past billion years, because it takes much less than a billion years to traverse the galaxy and and move around and fill up all these things. And and you can think of uh, AI systems, I mean, uh, uh, equipment, not biological creatures necessarily doing that because uh, we are not suited for interstellar travel. You know, we, right. Darwinian selection of creatures like us did not prepare us for s- space travel. You know, we live for 100 years, maybe at best, and it takes light four years to reach the nearest star. It takes light tens of thousands of years to cross the galaxy. Uh, you, you know, we and and, and are very hazardous uh, Uh, conditions out there in space, you are exposed to cosmic rays and most of us would not survive one year uh, out there. And so my point is, we're not suited for space travel, but equipment is. And you can imagine equipment that will travel for a billion years. If it has intelligence, like artificial systems, artificial intelligence systems have, um, then uh, that equipment will make its own decisions autonomously. It doesn't need to to communicate with us. You can think of AI systems as babies you know that you you can create and then they will have their own life so you can give them your uh blueprint of you know guiding principles and uh guidance as to how they should uh, you know what, what what should be the principles by which they are guided and and just send them to the world and let them uh, adapt to circumstances let them make their own decisions and machine learning and so forth can allow them to do that just like uh, humans um, you know, you raise them and then you send them into
0: reality, and and that that may have
1: happened already.
0: So when the sun hits this paper-like structure, the sun's photons push the sail and kind of push this whole thing forward. Is that how it works?
1: Yeah, it's just like um, you know, you can imagine uh, playing tennis and. Uh, when the ball hits your racket, it gives it a push, right? I see. So okay. In much the same way, when a photon, which is a particle of light, hits the surface of of, uh, of this sail, it gives it a push as it bounces back. But as I said before, it doesn't need to be a sail. It just needs to be a thin object, a thin structure. It could be used for communication, just to collect data,
0: yeah. It almost seems like this, this paper-like structure that's using photons to sail around... The solar system would also need a form of navigation or path planning. And you could imagine it almost using some sort of accelerometer or gyroscope to to kind of keep track of where it's going and where it wants to go.
1: Yeah, that's right. The key here is, you know, it's a fishing expedition and we don't know what kind of fish we will find. And I think the key is to be open-minded and just use evidence to guide us. And that's the key, getting more data. And the worst we can do is to say business as usual. Forget about it.
0: Right. You know, it's funny. I I, I don't know if you know uh, Seth Shostak at at the SETI Center. Yeah, I interviewed him and we were talking about it would be a really great idea for us to send – probes up to mars and and send the 3d printers and have the 3d printers create structures like self-sustaining structures and things like that and he poo-pooed the whole idea he's like why would we do that we would never and it kind of reminds me of what you said earlier with in academia where there's kind of like this closed-minded view of, of a lot of this kind of stuff
1: yeah, well, unfortunately, you know, the the reason I seek intelligence from space is I don't find it often here on earth. And <laughs> if if another civilization were to look at us, you know, we are wasting a lot of resources yes. and fighting each other, trying to feel superior relative to each right. other. And I, I define intelligence as a culture that uh, adapts the principles of science, which which are uh, cooperation and sharing of evidence-based knowledge. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, th- there are two key ingredients here. One is uh, cooperation, and the second is evidence-based. And what, sh- what Shostak is doing is basically saying, oh, there is no point in you know, doing right. this, searching for that. Uh, that is not evidence-based uh, knowledge. And uh, my point is, if we can imagine sending uh, probes to other places. Why would we assume that others like us didn't do it already? If Precisely my point. Us? Right? Yeah. Yeah. So we should we should be completely open-minded. And the strange thing, you know, the amazing thing, you talk to people that are so that's their job, right? He is in the city. That's
0: why. That's and, why I asked and, that.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I find that remarkable, right? Because he was supposed to advocate for anything uh, related to that, but instead. What he's trying to do is protect the mainstream uh, approach, saying, you know, let's be careful and let's not think too uh, in, in directions that are too risky. Right. Uh, and I think, you know, that's part of this mentality where the subject is being ridiculed and he's worried about how he will be perceived. So um, for me, you know, I'm acting just like basketball players are supposed to act where they have to keep their eyes on the ball and not on the audience. But unfortunately, (laughs) most scientists and including Seth, and uh, you know, he keeps his eyes on the audience. He just wants many likes on Twitter (laughs) and a lot of these people. Uh, And so, you know, I hope to change this culture and I can guarantee to you that what will happen is if I get uh, this research initiative funded and uh, then it becomes a mainstream, extreme activity, because a lot of people are interested in that. There is money coming from the private sector. Uh, more money is infused into science that is exciting. So young people get into it. Then at some point, everyone would say, oh, of course, you know, this was right. a subject that everyone cared about right. for many years. Right. And in fact, I advocated for that in the 60s, Shostak would say, right. and it's nothing new. <laughs> and then he would say, I said it before and I argued for that. And that is that was. So my point is, when you look at at the audience and not on the ball, you can always claim uh, that you actually did not suppress the study. But I think by now we have everything documented. So any historian that would like to go back and see what happened before it became uh, mainstream
0: would be able to tell. It has been said that universal truth is not measured in mass appeal. And like you said earlier about the uh, scientists who only embrace... Ideas that were controversial, but now they're accepted. Uh, what do you say about the, the lack of courage uh, by these scientists?
1: I have another uh, aspect of it uh, that I think should be emphasized. And, and that is, uh, if you just seek extraordinary evidence, but you're not willing to fund uh, the search, <laughs> then, of course, you know, at some point, even if you close the curtains uh, on your windows, at some point, there might be a knock on the door and your neighbor will show up. But at that point, it would be too late for you to act responsibly, because uh, the only way you can um, you know, behave in a way that reflects reality is if you have an advanced uh, awareness of it. And I think it's always good to know uh, your environment, to know if you have neighbors, to collect data. And why would anyone invest hundreds of millions of dollars in searching for the nature of dark matter and not invest, you know, a thousand times less money uh, in the search for extraterrestrials that are just like us. Why would that be the case? It makes no sense whatsoever. I think, uh, you know, it it has a a potential for for impacting society that is far greater. And by the way, the
0: public cares about it. Just put
1: these two together and you will get more funding for science.
0: Right. Avi, this is a great subject here, which is, When and where and why did the scientific culture change from being an open-minded one to a closed-minded one? What's your what's your thesis on that?
1: Well, I think it stems from the fact that scientists are often reward. I mean, it became sort of a closed bubble where scientists reward each other for showing that they are smart, rather than for focusing on evidence. And you, the proof is that you have a whole culture of theoretical physics, you know, centered about Uh, extra dimensions, the multiverse, uh, ideas that cannot be tested experimentally, string theory, and these are celebrated. So these are considered as mainstream and people are getting prizes, awards, uh, honorary uh, societies membership based on the fact that they do intellectual or mathematical gymnastics and demonstrate that they are smart. And the question of whether there is any evidence, you know, empirically by, you know, experimentally. Mm -hmm for what they are talking about is irrelevant in that culture. And and it's a good place to be in because you cannot be proven wrong by experiments <laughs> and therefore you're safe. It's wow. just like, a, a, it's yeah. a sandbox where you can demonstrate how smart you are. And right. if that's the objective, showing that you are smart, then it's perfectly legitimate to adapt that, to embrace that. And at the same time to say, Oumuamua must be a rock, you know, because that's also, Uh, uh, you you know, that's also a very good uh, statement in the sense that you don't take any risks and you basically ridicule any other possibility and you maintain business as usual. You continue to justify whatever everyone else is thinking. And therefore, people like you on Twitter and everywhere else. So I'm saying the culture of dismiss, you know, not paying attention to anomalous evidence and the culture of not even asking for evidence, but going in directions that cannot be tested, those two can live, coexist. They support each other. And the common denominator is evidence is not really important. What is, what's important is that we show that we are smart.
0: I don't know if you're familiar with the Russian mathematician Grigory Perlman. Yes, of course. Where, it, where it's kind of the same thing where he kind of highlights how the mathematics uh, academic community is not interested in 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 solving like real real important problems in mathematics for example he solved uh, a conjecture and they wanted to award him like a million dollars or something like that yeah. and a, it, there was a cer- yeah there was a ceremony and he d- he didn't attend as a protest against exactly kind of like what you're talking about
1: yes i i agree i mean that's the reality of the situation what you hear from me is not an it's not uh, hallucinations you know i I was pretty much, um, you know, I served in many leadership uh, positions and, you know, at some point when my parents uh, passed away a few years ago, I decided, you know, we live for such a short time. Why pretend? Why play these games which make little sense? And um, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously carrying the consequences of that. And, uh, you know, early in my life, I was I served in the military. and. Uh, and when I was in in, in paratrooper training, I remember s- the saying, sometimes a soldier needs to put uh, his body on the barbed wire so that other can pass through. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's pretty much what uh, is happening to me because I get, you know, a lot of, uh, I, I, I feel the pain from, from people attacking me personally just because I express a different view. You know, it's just like in the kindergarten, that there is a kid that looks different and then everyone else is, bullying or ridiculing that kid. Uh, and uh, I think it should have been exactly the other way around. Uh, uh, you know, the, the science community should have celebrated a situation where there is something anomalous. People should have been excited and, and, and would have, should have said, wow, there is something that we didn't expect. Let's collect more data. Let's find out what this thing is. You know, that's part of the excitement of exploring the world. Instead of saying, forget about it, it doesn't. You know, it must be a rock, And ridiculing anyone suggesting something else i find that really strange
0: it it is strange when i I do read articles of Amuamua, the depiction or the illustration is always a rock which i found interesting
1: yeah i mean it's not just that but then uh, some people took seriously the anomalies and they came up with explanations that are natural in origin that the rest of the community said yes it must be that but all of these suggestions Uh, invoked something that we've never seen before, like a hydrogen iceberg, (laughs) or a nitrogen iceberg, or a a dust bunny, a collection of dust particles (laughs) that are loosely bound. We've never seen anything like it. There are issues with each and every of these explanations, and I wrote papers on why these explanations uh, uh, cannot work. Um, But irrespective, I say, you know, if it's something that we've never seen before, let's collect more data, let's find more evidence. But instead, what you find is, first of all, there was a review paper in Nature written by a lot of people that worked on rocks in the solar system, basically saying, oh, it must be natural, there is nothing to worry about, business as usual, that's it. So they said that. And then you see a a group of scientists saying, oh, no, actually, maybe it's a hydrogen iceberg, something we've never seen before, and therefore quite interesting, So, and then you see another group saying, oh, maybe it's a nitrogen iceberg. Then you see a third group saying, maybe it's a collection of dust particles, a hundred times less dense than air. And I say to myself, if it was obvious to the original team that it must be natural, how come those other scientists, why did they have to write papers that took them months to, to write? trying to explain the anomaly this way or another way that in, in, in the form of something we've never seen before. So this doesn't hold water. It, it's not consistent to on the one hand claim, it must be a rock and natural and nothing special about it. And at the same time, other scientists saying, no, 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 it must be something exotic, still natural. You know, that, that it doesn't make sense. It reminds me of um, when, you know, in, in the 1930s, there was a group of scientists, a hundred. Scientists that decided to write a book against Einstein's theory of relativity, and they—it was titled "A Hundred Scientists Against Relativity" or something like that. And Einstein was asked about it, and he said, "You know, if there is something wrong with my theory, it's sufficient to have one scientist explain it. Why?" It it goes—it
0: goes goes back to the whole popularity thing. If you have a hundred scientists, then it must be true.
1: Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's it's not about that. It's about evidence. Science is about evidence and not about... Because in the days of Galileo, everyone agreed that the sun moves around the earth. You look at the sky, you see the sun moving. What else could be more obvious? You know, obviously the sun moves around the earth. And, you know, that's true also on, when you are sitting in a train. You know, you see everything moving past you and you say, okay, I'm not moving. Everything is moving past me. Uh, that's a natural thing to think. But the reality is... We see the sun moving because we are moving. Uh, and that is something that took a while for people to recognize. And, you know, the fact that the majority voted in favor of us uh, being at the center of the universe would mean that if there was social media back then, then Galileo would have been canceled. Not only, you know, not only put in house arrest, but people would cancel Galileo, say, forget about ridicule him and say, that's really ridiculous. How can he dare to claim that we are not at the center of the world? We know it since Aristotle, you know, for a thousand years, how dare he say that? Um, And so popularity has nothing to do with the reality we live in. We now know we sent, you know, we sent uh, satellites, we sent uh, spacecraft, we can see the earth, We can see the sun, and we see that the earth moves around the sun. It's obvious, you know, there is no dispute about it now. But just think what people thought thousands of years ago, and to them it was obvious exactly the reverse. So then you ask yourself, is science based on popularity? Is reality really reflecting what most people think? No, obviously (laughs) not. If you don't look through the windows, you will think that you don't have neighbors.
0: Right. And, And, you know, Albert Einstein can't be spared from... Thinking about spooky action at a distance, which was a quantum entanglement.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, in the last decade of his career, he made three wrong statements, three mistakes. Uh, one was that black holes don't exist. The other one that gravitational waves do not exist. And the third one was that quantum mechanics doesn't have what he called spooky action at a distance. And he was wrong on all three, which which is to show that you know if you are dealing with reality, if you are making statements about something that can be tested experimentally. You might be wrong. You know, that's part of the learning experience. But the way to avoid that, of course, is not to make statements that can be tested. But as far as I'm concerned, that's very similar to what Bernie Madoff uh, thought. You know, Bernie Madoff told people, just give me your money and I will make more of it irrespective of what the stock market does. And that was a beautiful thought. It was so beautiful that people gave him their money. It was, they were happy to give him their money. He was happy that they gave him the money. Everyone was happy. <laughs> so if you were to ask at that point, what is the popular idea? You would say Bernie Madoff's idea is popular because it makes the people happy, the people that gave him the money happy, and it, ma- it makes him happy. Everyone is happy. So based on popularity, this idea wins when was this idea abandoned? when people asked for their money back you know they told him okay now give us the money back and he couldn't do that couldn't deliver that was an experiment a reality check and then he was put in jail that's called the ponzi scheme so how do you tell if an idea that everyone likes that is beautiful whether that idea is a ponzi scheme or it describes reality The only way to tell is to do the experiment. And that's a key facet of scientific inquiry. You can't rely on popularity. You can't rely on what most people like and think. Or emotion. Or emotion. You have to rely on evidence, which is based on what instruments collect. And that's my point. And how can that not be accepted? How can people say we know the answer in advance we don't need the evidence obviously it's a self fulfilling prophecy just like the philosophers during the days of galileo they didn't look through his telescope and they were convinced that they're right
0: yeah and it's 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 such it's so disappointing that it's very prevalent in the scientific community and other academic sectors now if extraterrestrials are real if these probes are alien in nature Do you think it's a good idea to communicate with them, or do you think they'll see us as prey?
1: No, I do think that um, most likely we will meet, uh, we will have contact with equipment, uh, and most likely that equipment will be autonomous. It doesn't have time to communicate with whoever sent it. And if I were to think about the most likely situation, it would be uh, an artificial intelligence system that... uh, could be smart and they learn and they make decisions on its own, you know, just like humans do. And then you ask yourself, OK, how can we interpret that? Uh, we will have to rely on our artificial intelligence systems, uh, our computers, and um, in order to figure out what, what they are doing. Uh, it's sort of like relying on on your kid to tell you what you see on the internet because the kid has better computer skills. and. We will have to rely on our computer computers. And in a way, it's a race between artificial intelligence systems. We will be sort of spectators uh, in that. And that's, you know, the question of what the uh, intent of those systems is will have to be figured out, again, by evidence. Um, we will have to see what kind of data they're seeking, those systems, uh, how do they respond to what we are doing, and then we can try to engage with them. And I think it's a whole fascinating, uh, you know, frontier for us to think about once we are sure that they are near us. And for that to happen, we need to collect more evidence about the UAP, about objects like Oumuamua.
0: And that's what I plan to do. And hopefully we could uh, all get. Uh... Smarter about evidence and not emotion and popularity contest to kind of Be able to to really take this information in and, and benefit humanity
1: Yeah, and I should say that uh, if anyone listening um, Is interested in contributing uh, to the project that I'm working on uh, They're welcome to contact me uh, I Already received some significant funding from uh, wealthy individuals and um, uh, of course um, The the scope of the research will very much depend on the total level of funding. Uh, We can do much
0: more the more we get. And where can people go uh, to get information on that? Do you have a website?
1: Yeah, uh, they can go to my website at Harvard. It's uh, Avi Loeb, if you put it on Google, A-V-I-L-O-E-B. I I have a a professional website where uh, a lot of my... Uh, weekly essays in Scientific American are featured and uh, also the project itself will be announced um, uh, uh, within uh, uh, by the end of of July so then uh, there would be opportunities
0: to to read more about it uh, there okay Avi uh, one last thing I want to ask you is tell me a personal story about you something that you find interesting that you want to share
1: oh um, I guess the first day in school (laughs) Uh, which is mentioned in my book, Uh, when I came to the classroom on my first day in in school uh, at age uh, seven or so, um, I saw the kids jumping up and down on their desks. I just got into the classroom and I saw kids jumping up and down. And I was trying to figure out why would they do that? Does it make any sense? So it took me a few minutes to try and figure this out. And in the meantime, the teacher entered the room and so the teacher saw the other kids jumping up and down on the on the desks, and she saw me looking at them and behaving quite respectfully. And so she said to all the kids, why don't you behave just like Avi? Uh, <laughs> you know, he he's so well behaved. Uh, and I thought to myself, I wanted to correct her. I wanted to tell her, I'm not well behaved, I'm just trying to figure out if it makes sense to jump jump up and down on the on the desk. That's <laughs> all. And that pretty much reflects my career in science. You know, I'm not a true scientist. Yeah, I'm not doing what others are doing just because they are doing it, just so that I can be liked by them. I'm just trying to do what makes sense.
0: That was actually, actually a very great story and emblematic of, of the subject at hand. Well, thank you, Avi, for being on the show. Really appreciate it. It was a great pleasure, Evan. Thank you.